0: Welcome to a special edition of the Mass Bar Beat Podcast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Bar Association, which is available free to members of the bar as well as the public. We feature lively discussions about important legal developments, interesting stories about NBA members, and helpful practical information about the law. This is Jordan Rich. Now, this episode is special because it features seven guests, all of whom are winners of the 2019 NBA Access to Justice Public Service Awards. I was able to track them all down. They're all busy individuals. To talk with them briefly about their work and their reaction to being recognized for their achievement. You're about to meet some very impressive people. First up, a chat with the Rising Star Award winner Gina Platanino, staff attorney at Central West Justice Center in Worcester. The award's given to an attorney employed by a legal services organization, public defender organization, or state or federal prosecutor's office, who's been a practicing attorney for seven years or less, and has made a significant and meaningful contribution to the community. Here Gina talks about receiving the award. So we're
1: surprisingly pleased. I was not expecting it. It was very nice to hear how um, your colleagues recognize the work you do. You know, they, they call it a rising star award, but I've been extremely blessed to have wonderful people who have mentored me along the way. When I thought about starting a nonprofit, it was my former judge at the appeals court who encouraged me to do it and thought that it wasn't a crazy idea. When I thought about switching jobs or going overseas, it was my judges and mentors who said, do it, take the opportunity. Um, my current supervisor and managing attorney here at Central West are extremely supportive of the work. Any crazy idea I have, I'm like, this is what we can do. As long as it's a valid idea, they're very supportive. So I'm grateful for the award, but I know that this award belongs to many people who have made my work possible.
0: Let's talk about the work you do. I mean, you're somebody who's involved very much with helping those who are in need. Is this something that, as a staff attorney, it just fit naturally, or did you always want to do this kind of work?
1: I think as, in, as I go through different stages of my career and get more involved in the community, that kind just of uh, arises organically.
0: Gina, you co-chair the Central Massachusetts SNAP Coalition. SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Tell us more, if you will, about your role in helping your clients navigate that program.
1: Sure. So I was actually brought on to the organization to manage the food security project. It's it's the only legal office in Massachusetts that has a similar program as a collaboration with the Worcester County Food Bank because they wanted more work around uh, clients being able to access SNAP, and they realized that food pantries is not the the only solution, that there were systemic issues that needed to be addressed, particularly in our service area where we have various rural communities um, and a higher percentage of low-income people and also people who have... disabilities, and language access, um, limited English proficiency.
0: As an advocate for those in need, particularly those who are hungry, uh, this is a problem that often goes unnoticed in the general media, isn't it? There are a lot of hungry people out there.
1: They are, and, and the issue is that they look just like you and me. Most people can't tell Uh, that people are hungry so the way it manifests itself is you know a student might be acting up with disciplinary issues and the teacher might think like wow they just don't pay attention they must have some sort of disability or or bad parenting when in reality they're just hungry and the best way I usually when I train people try to bring awareness is like you know don't eat for half a day and look how you act we get cranky try living like that Mm -hmm. uh, seven days a week
0: Gina, one of the things you got involved in, a lot of people have been involved in, that's relief for those victims of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. How did that manifest itself in your world?
1: So I'm fortunate enough to be very connected with the community here that we serve and in going to community meetings because the majority, I want to say almost 90%, the number might be higher of all the evacuees, came to our service area in central and western Massachusetts, and there really wasn't much organization. I mean, the state really did try, and other organizations did try, but there were no legal services organizations kind of working around this issue and how we were going to target them. But uh, with great collaboration with many state agencies and other key stakeholders, we were able to assist them.
0: We can honestly say that as a Massachusetts based attorney. You have connections and ties to many parts of the world. Can you talk about the organization you're involved in in Southeast Asia? You are a co-founder and president.
1: Yes. You know, you asked me where my desire came from, food security work and that sort of thing. I actually worked uh, at an international firm. And as I worked there, I was doing corporate work, but realized a lot of work that I did was land acquisition from as villagers to sell to foreign governments and realize that the people were left without any sort of recourse. Um, There was a high poverty area, but there's no systems in place like in the U.S. to help the people. Um, And so we started our organization with the focus of providing job security, uh, food security, through industrial programs. So self-sufficiency, that's our goal. And because I was so interested in that, when I came back to the States and the food security project opportunity came my way, I saw that those two relationships were perfect. Mm -hmm.
0: As a rising star winner, that's very appropriate because you certainly are. Do you have future aspirations in terms of the work you're doing? Where do you see yourself years from now in this field?
1: I really hope that we can keep increasing the awareness um, as to the work that we're doing on a personal level at the foundation that I manage. I hope that we can keep on growing. We are expanding rapidly to other parts of the region, um, and it, it's very much needed. Like I said, they don't have the resources that we have here. Here in the statewide, I, I want us to, um, usually, Central and Western Mass are left out of the equation when. Big decisions are made. Everything sometimes seems to be very Boston-centric, and, you know, I worked in Boston many years, and and I love Boston. Our region is not like that region. You know, our clients face surmountable more issues around transportation and rural communities. Um, So I want to bring more awareness to that.
0: Next up, the Defender Award winner. The Defender Award is given to an attorney with a public or nonprofit agency who provides criminal legal service to low-income clients. This year, the award is bestowed upon attorney Tania Snow.
2: First, I'll say I was definitely very surprised. (laughs) I'm very thankful. It's very humbling. I've been doing this work for a little over eight years, and I didn't do it for any recognition, any public recognition or anything like that. And very humbling to have the respect of my peers. I go to work every day, and I'm trying to do a good job. You never know that people are watching, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to point out, for those who may not know yet, you come from a pretty interesting family of folks giving back, including your grandmother. So this runs in the family. It's part of your gene pool.
2: Apparently. (laughs) Um, Yes, my grandmother ran for a very long time a program called um, Aid to Incarcerated Mothers did a lot of work in the community and working on behalf of women who are incarcerated and, you know, going into the courtroom, advocating for the women who were part of her program, uh, had a regular bus service so that the children could see their parents in prison, and then also when they got out, had um, services for them at the program, whether that's counseling or groups. For me, my grandmother did a really great job of separating work from home. So as I got older, I learned about all the stuff that she did, you know, but at home or among families, she was Nana. Even though, like, I didn't know initially when I was a kid some of the stuff that she was doing when I got older, I recognized, oh, that person who visited the home and she gave that gift card to, that person was a part of her program, you know, sure. and just, just witnessed Little acts of service.
0: Some of that stuff people never saw, you know? You were offering your services and offering to help disadvantaged kids even before you became a lawyer.
2: It just generally came from a place of wanting to to help. I know. If I didn't go to law school, I probably would have been a teacher. Definitely, hands down. Um, but I chose to, to go to law school. And... When I started doing those various jobs, it was me just trying to figure out what exactly I wanted to do because I was unsure as to, you know, if I wanted to teach or did I want to go into social services. What was common for me is that I enjoyed working with the young people, whether that was um, working at a program doing tutoring services or working at a program where you're plugging in community services. Um, When I was in college, I worked at a girls' group home, and then there we were just making dinner for the kids and making sure that they were safe and making sure it was a safe environment, just talking with them. I know it sounds very simple, but it is what it is, you know. It it came from a place of wanting to help, and everybody's story was different, you know. For the kids in the group home who were removed from their families, and this is where the legal part comes in, Young people felt like they weren't being heard. And they didn't really have an understanding of what was going on with their cases, and that was both from the kids that I worked with who were in care of the Department of Children and Families, as well as the kids that I worked with prior to law school who were a part of the Department of Youth Services. And so I was like, okay, you should know what's going on. And, you know, and then as I, you know, went to law school and did various internships and then learning about the law, like, oh, I like this area of law, I like you know, criminal defense, I like educational advocacy, and I, and I like working with young people. It's like check, 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 you know, <laughs> all three things. Uh, <laughs> you really learn as you continue to do the work how really effective counsel has the ability to change the trajectory of an individual's life
0: it can also impact you know, their families as well as their community. Just one more thing I'd love you to comment on, and there was so much that we could have you discuss here with us, but your role as president of the Massachusetts Black Women Attorneys Organization and what that role entails and what the goal is as president. Please inform us.
2: My role as a—so I've been a part of um, the Massachusetts Black Women's Attorney for the last um, four years. And um, it has been a fantastic um, experience for me to connect with other women attorneys who, in, in the state of Massachusetts, who are leaders. Not just leaders, but people who, want, who are together, you know, for a sense of community and support of one another, um, whether that is providing mentoring or going to professional development, programming, or doing community service activities. One year we served at a uh, homeless shelter in Lynn. Each year we've collected gift cards for mothers during the holiday season. And this year we actually collected toys to give to children of those mothers at two homeless shelters. And so being a part of the Massachusetts Black Women's Attorneys is like an opportunity to give back and give back and learn from other women. And then being president this past year has been a tremendous honor. We just recently had our annual um, Ida B. Wells Tea, where we highlight women in the community who represent the spirit of Ida B. Wells. And this year we had the pleasure of honoring Desiree Ralph Morrison, Don Perry, Rachel Rollins, and it was just a fantastic event in which we gathered together. There were about 140 people in this room at the Mandarin all there to not just learn from each other, but to hear from the speakers and and also get to know new people in the community. There were judges and law students and lawyers from the public and private sector. And for, for some, it's like, I'm not alone in this big wide world big legal community it's definitely letting women know that you know you're seen and that you're heard and that we're here for you
0: the 2019 prosecutor award is for a state or federal prosecutor who has distinguished himself or herself in public service and commitment to justice that's certainly the case with this year's winner meet adrian bispam west roxbury district court supervisor of the suffolk county's da office first i got his reaction to receiving the award
3: Well, I mean, first it was very surprising. The first major award that I've uh, won from a bar association, you know, I was humbled by it. I kind of do the work that I do and have been doing it for so long. I do it because I believe in it, because it's fulfilling to me, because I think it's the right thing to do. And, you know, I'm blessed to be able to, you know, wake up every day and have a job that I enjoy and I'm challenged by and that I feel, you know, helps the community. So to be able to be recognized, essentially for doing something that I love. It's an amazing thing to be uh, the one to uh, receive the award this year uh, means a lot to me.
0: Adrian, would you share with us your thoughts on prosecutorial discretion and how important that is to you when trying cases?
3: I mean, I I look at every case, every situation individually, and and I think that every case brings with it its own circumstances. Every person has a different story to tell, defined just by either their record or a particular incident that occurred. And, you know, I, I strongly believe and I try to impart this to the attorneys that I work with and supervise that nobody is, you know, what they've done on their worst day or the biggest mistake that they've made or the case that we see before them. So, having discretion in how to handle cases is critical in, in terms of figuring out what the best outcome is, best possible outcome, I would say, uh, in a particular case for the victim of, of a crime if there is one for the community at large for the de- and for the defendant as well all, all of those different people uh, need to be considered and as prosecutors we should be doing that and that's my philosophy and has been long as i have done this work to do that and to use my discretion to try to make any situation or any case that I get involved in better than I left it before to to the extent that it's possible and not necessarily just being pigeonholed to a specific well if this happened and there this- this person has this type of record, then this is this should be the outcome because that's really impossible to do and to truly do what I believe is real justice.
0: And I would imagine you have countless examples where you've taken this holistic approach and things ultimately might have worked out in a more positive direction for the community and the individual involved, because there is a practical result to treating individuals as individuals, isn't there?
3: Yes, certainly. So it doesn't necessarily manifest itself immediately. Obviously, the case uh, resolves and everybody goes about their business. But I've had cases you know, where we cut a, a young man a break and he's able to get a job or to start to get his uh, college education where... In other cases, he might have been incarcerated, you know, able to find a home and do something productive with his life and for the community. That's a benefit that wouldn't be gained just by sending that person to jail. I've had victims and defendants sit down with their attorneys and, and people from our office to talk about what happened. And to do things in a more uh, restorative justice oriented mindset and really see people come to a better understanding of why somebody did something where somebody's coming from, how a harm you know a harm or crime impacted the other individual and they again leave with a, a greater understanding of each other and, and feel better and more whole. Process. A lot of times the criminal justice system is so loaded down with so many cases, it's all about resolving cases, moving things along the docket, and, and sometimes it's hard to slow things down and to take time to really do that, and, and I personally try to make sure that I do that because it really does help to have everybody leave and walk away with better understanding and feeling like their voices were heard. Those. Tend to work out mm. better for those, the individuals involved and, and for the community. And, you know, there's always some times where you, you know, something happens, you try to cut somebody a break and people still make mistakes and nobody's perfect and, and things happen. Uh, you know, I've seen cases where people have come back a couple of times and sometimes you just got to work with them and eventually they get it and, and head on a better path, even though it, you know, it may take uh, longer <laughs> than, in, right. than in other cases.
0: And finally, as a person of color, you've been instrumental in trying to bring people together from different communities. Talk a bit about that and share with us your thoughts
3: it is very challenging and obviously you know an ongoing issue and and struggle and and thing that I continue to work on and work with uh, different partners on and and unfortunately in some instances people still walk away and have their own different opinions but I come at it from a a couple of different angles I've been involved in youth-based organizations where I'll work with young people in programming, talk to them one on one about what's going on in their lives, you know, what's going on in the system. And, and try to explain it one on one. I've been involved and worked with the Mass Black Lawyers Association to hold Know Your Rights panels, where we invite the community. We've done uh, a number where we've had uh, young people in the community, also where we had we've had just adults and all people in the community to really just a go over a lot of the kind of the various different scenarios and things that people might see, uh, and then b just you know open for to answer questions, to educate them on what the laws are, what their rights are, um, how the system works, and you know, how they can most best navigate it if they come into contact with it. Uh, and even just, you know, as simple as being in court and, and listening to uh defendant family uh, or parents asking questions to each other about a case or charges, you know, and the defense attorney not have, being there yet and going up to them and, and talking to them and saying, hey, this is what's happening and this is what these charges mean and this is how this person can be charged with this or, or, or that. It's a huge process, scary process, and I think that especially as lawyers, we all take it for granted because we know it and we work in it and it makes sense to us. But when you listen to the community on the other side, it's not as well understood. So much of, of what I do, what I try to do, comes down to letting people's voices be heard and making them feel like, A, they're their people and that they matter, they have a voice in the system and, and that they have the right to understand it and to navigate it at, you know, as best as possible and that hopefully you know, I can you know, do my small part to, to make it uh, work better for them.
0: Next up, the Legal Services Award winner, given to an attorney from a public or non-profit agency providing civil legal services to low-income clients. I spoke with the award recipient, Luz Arevalo, Senior Attorney at Greater Boston Legal Services.
4: I was pleased because it allows us to make a stronger case that the work that we do is important and that it's making a difference. And that, I know that sounds cliche, but when we have to go to uh, either private foundations or uh, the lawyers, private attorneys or the house and explain what we do. I mean, we have our stories and all that, but if they see hey, you know, the peers also recognize this, there must be something here. Personally, I was kind of surprised. Uh, You know, I've been doing this for close to 20 years, and it's really client by client by client that that we measure if I mean, that's what I like about it, that folks see that somebody's on their side, they were able to resolve what seemed to be a pretty bad situation for them.
0: Talk a little bit, if you will, about the work you do, particularly in the tax and employment area, and give us a little sense as to what you're doing.
4: Uh, The main work that we do is assist clients who have tax problems. What sort of problems? Well, I didn't get my refund. or I'm being audited because I claim the earned income credit and I'm not sure where to start to pile my proof that my kids are my children and that they live with me, etc. When folks have um, situations where they haven't filed their returns for a number of years and now they want to come clean because they need to travel and they may not get a passport, or because their kid is about to go to college and they need to, to show some proof of income, now they need to have something to show that they are good citizens. The standard in our country for somebody who wants to become a, a green card holder or a citizen is have you filed your taxes because that makes you a person of good moral character. That's what we help them to do. And then there are folks who, under the law, should have remedies that don't exist yet. So, for example, victims of domestic violence who cannot file a joint return, they're trying to get away from their spouse. And because they're not filing together, they're going to lose um, tax credits, money that would help for them to get a fresh start. To have their kids be able to uh, you know get something for Christmas that sort of thing. I mean it's work where a client receives a letter from the IRS and they just get scared. They're thinking I'm going to go to jail. I'm not going to be able to see my kids. What's going on? It takes an emotional toll on people. Being able to show that they actually worked and earned their money but because they had to Work classified as independent contractors instead of employees. So no taxes are taken out and now they owe fortune and what do I do about this? That's the sense of the cases that we see.
0: I know you must be very proud of the innocent spouse bill that was recently signed by the governor in January of this year. You were very much a driving force. Why is that bill so important? Why are you so proud of it?
4: It was so needed. In fact, that was sort of embarrassed that we had not already passed such a legislation here in Massachusetts. So it makes a difference because there are clients who, uh, without realizing the consequences, sign a joint return with their spouses. And then a couple of years later, they come to find out from either the IRS or the DOR that guess what? Your, your spouse had a, a side business, didn't report the income or may have reported the income, but didn't pay the tax. And now you are on the hook for that money as well. And that's not right. The extreme situations are those in which the spouse uh, or my client it was a victim of domestic violence. It's usually, she, she had no idea that this was even going on. To add insult to injury, not only am I being abused by this person, but now I have to pay a tax that he should have paid all along. So the bill gives them the remedy to be able to prove that hey, this was not my money, I didn't benefit from it, I didn't know about it, and I should not have to pay it.
0: You've had a great impact on behalf of your clients, helped in great part by the fact that you are from Columbia originally you're an immigrant, and you are bilingual.
4: It's a huge advantage to, to know the language, and I have come to appreciate it when I have clients from East Asia, uh, India. I have to use interpreters, and it does make a difference to be able to relate to them with, you know, your language and your culture. So, um, yes, it does make a difference. For one thing, you build trust with them. And to talk about taxes, I mean, I learned my lesson when I um, I came to this country when I was 15, and I do remember visiting my father's immigration lawyer and my father, the person that used to make do the tax returns for my family. It was always so instructive uh, to see these people be so respectful to my dad, who is, you know, shorter than i am and i'm five three you know a dark-skinned guy he you know clearly a foreigner who did not understand the language well but they were so respectful and they took their time and they showed him what was going on and when he came to the taxes what was nice about it is that my dad was always very good with numbers you, you could not fool him <laughs> with any computations in the bank or anywhere else and so it was great he would look at that document it was one of those things where he felt oh this i understand this is clear to me and and it just it's pretty empowering so that's what i try to do with my clients this is not beyond you it just it, you just pay a little bit of attention and you'll see that you can master this so that they're not taken advantage of i'm glad that i got to see that those were my teachers i mean it is a blessing to be able to communicate with them in this way but yeah we build bridges you know that's what we do and, and that's part of what we're trying to do in my office, too. You know, the Department of Revenue is pretty much automated, uh, has very few uh, multilingual services. One of our missions is, our objectives, rather, is to is to make it more accessible so that everybody participates and so that the tax system is also transparent. That's critical. In a democracy like what we have, we have to know where our money is going. The only way to, to really be part of that is if we know that, oh, I know the person who's doing my return, I know how much I'm paying, I know what changes are happening. When it comes to taxes, you measure income, you don't measure status, it has nothing to do with immigration.
0: The Pro Bono Publico Award for 2019, given to an individual who's been instrumental in developing, implementing and supporting pro bono programs. Stephen Smith, a member of the Bar, has worked tirelessly in helping his community in so many ways, and here he reflects on his honor. My initial
5: response was that I was speechless. I was <laughs> I got a, a phone call from uh, Andrew Cornell, who is, I believe the chair of the the Access to Justice Commission, and I didn't know what to say. I, I was just it's a tremendous honor. I, I'm not rendered speechless a lot, but uh, but that was my initial <laughs> response. It, it's very, very humbling, and uh, it's a great
0: honor. Well, pro bono work is what we, the public, suggest uh, all lawyers are probably doing at some point, but you've taken it to another level. Where did this all start for you? Uh, Have you always been interested in in helping out even before getting into law?
5: I have. I've I've always sort of, you know, tried to do my part. Um, I I went to Catholic school. I grew up out in Norfolk County, and I went to uh, Blessed Sacrament School in Walpole, and I suppose that uh, I learned a, a thing or two about charity there. But pro bono, as regards to law, how that started was uh, the very first thing that I did after I was sworn in, the day after I was sworn into the Massachusetts bar, I sat down at my uh, desk where I was working. I was working at the Norfolk Superior Court as a law clerk, and I filled out an application for the Norfolk County Bar Association. And the reason why was because I knew that they did those uh, free legal clinics. We do them six times a year now. We do them in uh, Quincy District Court and Dedham District Court. We hold the court open for two hours after hours, and we invite people in to ask any sort of legal question, anything at all. We try to help them as best we can. We're not recruiting. We're not trying to get you know clients. We're not soliciting or anything like that. We're trying to actually answer the question, give them help for free right there. And that was something I knew I wanted to be a part of.
0: You know, you're going to be, whether you like it or not, a mentor to others. I'm sure you're very proud of that fact. But were there individual attorneys or people in the legal field who you looked up to, who sort of mentored you, even if they didn't do it consciously when you were starting out? Absolutely.
5: Absolutely. Any number. Um, I would say probably one of the early ones was uh, now judge on the Superior Court, Beverly Canoni. She was one of my uh, first legal employers. She was... In the summer after my first year of law school, she was running the CPCS office, the public defender's office there in Dedham. I was looking to get a range of of experience that summer. I I ended up landing three different jobs because I wasn't sure exactly what direction I wanted to go, and I wanted to expose myself to different things. So I mailed out letters to a bunch of different prosecutor's offices and defense offices, and she was the only one who responded. and said, sure, come on in. I can't offer you any money, but if you want experience, come on in. We'll put you to work. And she was an incredible mentor, both in terms of practicing practice tips, practicing well, practicing skillfully, practicing ethically, but also in terms of of looking out for for everyone's best interests. She she really cared very deeply about her clients. I remember we were walking through Dedham Center one time. We'd gone to lunch or something, and we passed a, a gentleman who recognized her, and he stopped her. He had been a former client of hers. She had represented him on some sort of a criminal charge. He grabbed her shoulder and he he looked at me and he said, you know, I just had a recent criminal case and I shouldn't have hired private counsel. I should have had her represent me. She did a better job.
0: (laughs) You know, a wise man who was actually a pretty good musician, Duke Ellington, once said, there's nothing as valuable as time. Time is more valuable than money. When it comes to pro bono work, Steve, it's really your time and the knowledge you have invested in the law that is at play here. That's very valuable. What do you want to say to other attorneys or would-be attorneys about giving of your time?
5: That's a great question. I think this is a somewhat new principle, but it's something I I believe very strongly. In the medical field, I'm not an expert on the medical field, but it's my understanding this is a new idea in medicine. They're talking a lot about the idea of practicing at the top of your license. The idea being that if you have spent a lot of time and, and money and education developing a particularized skill that's rarer than the general population, the system, should try to maximize the amount of time that you are doing, you're practicing that particular skill as opposed to doing other things. I think the idea of practicing at the top of one's license is applicable both to the legal practice in general, but specifically to charitable works in law and outside law. The world needs lots of people to volunteer in soup kitchens, and I'm glad that that Norfolk County does, the, the Greater Boston Food Bank, the Mass Bar Association does any number of very... Things and it, it's all great, but I think there is also something to be said as you think about how you're going to spend your, your time charitably throughout the year. Can you give that time by practicing at the top of your skill set, so to speak? Is your time better spent working in a soup kitchen on a particular Saturday where maybe a lot of people can do that role? Or can you do a legal clinic? Can you log on to freelegalanswers.com and get the ABA's website and hand out some things there? Can you give of those skills in the service of charity where someone else may not be able to?
0: And the benefit to you, and I'm singling you out, has to be enormous when you know that decision you made to help out has had an impact going forward. It must feel very, very good.
5: It really does. I I would say that personally, when I think back on the pro bono cases and clients that I've had, I am more able to remember the clients and the details of their lives than necessarily the particulars of a case because it's it's the people that you meet and the stories that they tell you along the way. And I think in terms of practicing as a lawyer, that's one of the big benefits of doing pro bono work. I think that as a lawyer, you become better by exposing yourself to different types of clients. Work at some point for a big bank. Work at some point for an insurance company, for a doctor, for a lawyer. By working for different types of clients and developing the relationships according to their expectations, you become a better service provider. And pro bono clients are a large segment of the market that, frankly, aren't in the market because they can't afford our services usually. Doing pro bono work is the only way you'll expose yourself to those people and those expectations, and that makes you a more well-rounded attorney.
0: Just a few more winners to highlight. Next, a short conversation with the winner of the Pro Bono Award for Law Firms. Given to a law firm comprised of two or more attorneys, providing pro bono services benefiting the community, I had the chance to speak with Jessica Kelly, partner at Sharon and Lawrence, which has donated hundreds of hours to community causes over the years. Here, Jessica talks with me specifically about her work with Pair, the Political Asylum Immigration Representation Project.
6: So I got involved with Pair probably when I was when I was still a pretty new associate here, and the firm has always been very supportive of that, of of doing something the attorneys feel passionate about for pro bono work and pair um, makes it very easy to do immigration cases even if you're not an immigration lawyer so what they do is they they um, meet the clients um, in the first instance sort of screen their cases and then try to find um, lawyers at firms in the city who can then take the case on through hearing or Interviews um, on a pro bono basis and they give you the, all the tools that you need to do that. It's not incredibly complicated. Um, you obviously need to use your advocacy skills to put together your client's story and um, be able to fill out forms. But other than that, it's, it's, it's not that complicated. And, and if you need help at any point, the pair staff attorneys are there to help you. Um, and even to review work before you file anything
0: with the court. Now the firm has helped many people. Do you have an example, a first name only, of a case that might come to mind?
6: Sure. Um, I had a client, Patricia, who um, came to Boston via bus from El Salvador with her two young daughters who were, I believe, five and ten at the time she had been a victim of severe domestic violence in El Salvador from a very poor um, area of the country where the police basically don't do anything to help um, victims. And so she decided her only option was to leave with her daughters and was thankfully able to to get the money to do that. But the journey from El Salvador to Boston was very treacherous and harrowing, and a lot of bad things happened along the way. So, um, but she was able to get here. She was able to protect her daughter. She came with no money, no belongings, no phone, um, and was able to get herself and her two young girls here safely, which is just amazing. The whole story is, is amazing. And she you know, had some family here that she was able to live with while she went through the process of asylum. So we filed her papers. Um, then a year, year or two later, we went to court and we had presented her case, all of the facts. they Presented a, a long declaration, um, we presented a long declaration telling her story. When we got to court for the hearing, which was supposed to be an adversary proceeding with the trial attorney for the Department of Homeland Security, sort of on the other side, they decided not to even fight it um, because they thought her case was so compelling. And I was sitting there with her as the judge said, welcome to the United States. And I, and I can't remember a moment in my life where I've had chills so, so much just from being able to experience that with her. And, and you know, she was so nervous and so um, tense the whole day. And then, you know, sort of it all evaporated after that. And she's living here, and her, her girls are doing great. They're You know, they learned English right away. Um, they're thriving in school. She now has her permanent resident status. I still talk to her very often and and we're working on some other things with her so it's been an amazing experience to help her basically set up a new life.
0: The law firm has donated according to the notes here over 800 hours of attorney time for a pair of clients over many years. That's an incredible achievement and there's one other issue. There's a lot you can cover but the case in Alabama of a death row inmate that the law firm has been very much in tune with and helping to keep this gentleman alive. Talk a little bit about that before we let you go.
6: I haven't been directly involved in that but um, my partners have and a lot of attorneys here have. It's it's been going on for um, ten years and or or more than that and I think we have over a million hours built on that case Um, and there's no question about guilt or innocence in this case but there is a question of the process and um, what the states are doing with regard to executions and what is cruel and unusual punishment. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions about that. And um, a lot of states who still have capital punishment are finding unique and um, concerning ways (laughs) to execute people. So, you know, this, this case has been about, you know, making sure that this individual has due process and the right to, you know, keep fighting to make sure that the system that's in place in, in these states that have capital punishment are doing so in a in a legal constitutional
0: way. You've been an attorney enough to know what the day-to-day is like, but what does it really mean to have the job you have? What what does it mean to you?
6: Again, I, I love the fact that at the end of the day I can you know, review a contract and you know, go into court to fight for somebody's business or fight for somebody's profession, but also be able to use the skills that I learned in law school and that I've been able to, to work on you know, in the 12 years I've been practicing to help an immigrant um, find a better life or to make sure that states are following um, the Constitution when it, when it comes to constitutional rights. You know, I don't have to be a constitutional lawyer to do that, but, I, you know, our firm has been able to contribute in that way, and I think lawyers are a very, very big part of, you know, making sure this country continues to run on a proper basis.
0: And finally, the Lifetime Achievement Award. The Mass Bar Association is proud to recognize Judith Lieben from the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. Judith has an impressive record of accomplishment, and she's not done, not by a long shot
7: as i heard i was getting it i felt like i had to achieve more and more and more right now (laughs) you know it it would like spurred me on to do that and so i'm very much working in the here and now and thinking about what to do about the enormous challenges that are facing legal services and certainly lots of other other Mm -hmm. folks today but it sort of nudged me to open a window to take a look back and reflect in a way that I just rarely give myself the chance to do that or have avoided doing that. I don't yeah.
0: know. That's a wonderful answer to a question that I've asked everybody. Great way to look at it. Can you talk a little bit about the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute? Things have transpired there and in society, but how did it come about and how is it going now?
7: So when I was a baby lawyer in Lowell, Massachusetts in the mid late 1970s and 80s. Mass law reform then, which had started in 1968, actually formed the basis for my legal practice for many years. I wasn't part of mass law reform. I was working in a a local office in Lowell. But what happened in those years, in just one field, in housing, they did this in lots of ways, is that mass law reform and partners created whole new revolutionary ways of creating rights and opportunities for poor people in the housing field. Things that are taken as, as like just regular part of our legal landscape now were absolutely exotic and revolutionary in those times. So for the, the new lawyers who came in, we said, oh my gosh, we have all these new tools that you amazingly achieved for us, you, mass law reform, and others. I mean, but they were the critical group how do we go about doing it? We're new. You know, what are our tools? Where are our briefs? Where, where are everything else? And this incredibly generous, creative community of legal services just sort of came together at an important moment in time, as they did again in the foreclosure crisis 30 or 40 years mm. later. I look back and first I got depressed. <laughs> I said, this glass is so half empty because the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, we still live in a starkly racially and economically segregated state wealth and income are more unequal than ever terribly unmet needs for housing and um even then i remember mlri was litigating gentrification cases when copley place was being developed in the early 1980s and then i tried to reflect a little bit about and i filled the glass up a little bit you know said, what's good what's changed and it's this groundbreaking legal work that's a really good example so i could give you one example if that's useful please. Okay. And this is just one of a gazillion. In the 1970s and 80s, as I said, mass law reform led this fight for getting new legal tools in the legislature and in the courts. And the district court, because there were no housing courts then, could not really quite grasp the world had turned a little bit upside down. It was very hard to convince them that a lease was a contract, that tenants had a right to get what they bargained for, that there was a warranty of habitability, there were defenses, security deposits belonged to tenants. All these things were essentially imprinted in law by Metzler Foreman colleagues, that landlords couldn't retaliate against tenants. Court fees could be waived for low-income people. This was all kind of being developed. And they taught us, again, how to make those things real. That's one of the things that mass law reform did. And I feel like it, it's recapitulated itself a little bit when you think about the foreclosure crisis. In this state, we don't have what's called a judicial foreclosure state. You know, so when you're being foreclosed, you don't go to court and challenge it. But it all comes down to evictions, which is tenants and homeowners in foreclosed property eventually end up in eviction court. And we have developed the most far-reaching and productive set of laws and appellate cases of any other place in the country. And this is, again, an incredible group effort on the part of legal services and friends and community organizations, for sure. And in order to do that, we kind of built off of what we had created and worked on 30 or 40 years before.
0: Judith, your passions run high when it comes to housing issues. You've been working hard to help people when it comes to eviction, and a lot has changed over the years, hasn't it?
3: Just on this issue of eviction,
7: way back then in Lowell, if I lost a case, and we all lose cases, it was bad, but whoever my client was could go right out and rent another home in about a minute, and it didn't cost too much, and there was no database that put that person's name on the database so that uh, no landlord could then just immediately, they wouldn't, wouldn't get blacklisted. So eviction meant something a little different than it does today. When, of course, in this cruel housing market, it's just a life or death matter um, compared to compared to then. If anybody ever reads the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond, you kind of realize that you know what what a dire thing it is for children and for people to get evicted, especially since they can't find other housing often. And so the whole issue of eviction has come back into the public light in the legislature, in the newspapers, in sort of everybody's consciousness in a way it never was years and years ago. So based, again, on on things that were done so long ago, we get to continue fighting for more tenant protections in court and legislatures, including all the new things we're fighting for now, right to counsel, perhaps rent control, and other things that could obviously alleviate this terrible problem. So there's a lot to do, and over the years, I'm really proud to be part of that effort.
0: And here's a final question worthy of the Lifetime Achievement Award winner. And Judith, what sage words of advice would you have for the young lawyers, those entering law school, those graduating law school, who have their eyes set on making law a career? What would you like to advise them on?
7: This is what I tell the young lawyers in our office. I have one project that i worked on, and it's been 20 years. <laughs> but the truth is you can make progress with each step along the way. You might not you know, upset the entire apple cart or build a new apple cart, whatever the phrase is. But it's satisfying. Like the work that I look back on talking to you about, it's layered. It's all layered. There's a big burst, and then everyone slowly implements that burst. And then there's another burst. And then it might be a slower and more kind of gradual process, case by case, issue by issue, to make it work. Um, And community organization by community organization, because it works when folks on the ground are implementing these things. Of course, nothing happens immediately, although I could give you one example in which that's not true real quick. We were the sort of leaders, Mass Law Reform was the beginning leader, first, in the movement to protect tenants in foreclosure during the last foreclosure crisis, which is still with us today, big foreclosure crisis in 2008-2009, and we testified in Congress and got so much publicity that in the week of an eye, Congress passed a law, and that doesn't happen, as you know. Certainly not now, even even then. And Congress passed a law called Protecting Tenants and Foreclosure. That was unusual, that you could do something and something happened so quickly, but it's because everybody recognized they were in a crisis. And obviously we fail sometimes, too. We, do, we don't get what we need. But I do think it's this kind of an accretion. You layer on, and you layer on, and you layer on, and then at some point those layers move forward really quickly and then you might have to layer and layer again
0: my thanks to all who joined me the awards will be formally presented at the 2019 massachusetts bar association annual dinner in may the mba spotlight is proud to have highlighted our winners here and we look forward to hearing more about them and other public service-minded attorneys in the future you've been listening to the mass bar b podcast Available free at MassBar.org and downloadable on most popular podcast platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, and more. Remember, if you're a consumer in need of legal help, contact the Mass Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service. Call 866-627-7577. That's 866-627-7577. Or visit MassLawHelp.com. Let us connect you to a lawyer today. Mass Bar Beat, produced by the Massachusetts Bar Association. We invite you to subscribe so you'll never miss a beat. I'm Jordan Rich. Thank you for listening.